you, Charles and Joanna and Jamie, rest of the music team for serving us this morning. We really appreciate appreciate your work. Take your Bibles and turn to First Samuel chapter eight. We continue our study of First Samuel, page two hundred and thirty in your church Bible. I want to orient you to the first part of the chapter. We will look at each verse in the chapter, but to sort of set the table. I'm going to read the first nine verses of 1 Samuel chapter 8. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. And this is God's word. Last week, something happened in our church services that have never happened before, and that is a Stonehill congregation clapped for a preacher, Pastor Valentin from Haiti. I noticed it. I mentioned it in the worship service that I was part of. And uh, I don't know what to say about that, but a lot of you told me you were going to bring applause signs this week, and you didn't do it. You lied to me. So I'm very disappointed, actually. Well, actually, not really. Not worried about you clapping for sermons. I'm worried about you obeying the scripture. That was kind of important to me. And in fact, in this sermon, I don't think it would be a good idea to clap. Particularly, I don't think you should clap at all for the first part of the sermon. Because the first part of the sermon in 1 Samuel 8, we are going to see two tendencies that we have even as believers. And these tendencies are not good, okay? So don't clap and say, yeah, that's me. Yeah, yeah, I'm the guy in the dump. Don't don't clap. Now at the end, the second part of the sermon, we're going to learn two realities about who God is. And I may even encourage you to clap or at least say amen or say something in that section. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. Two tendencies that we all tend to struggle with. Two realities about God that we need to learn about. Let's dive in and look at the two uh, tendencies that we have. Let's look at the first tendency. The first tendency uh, that we tend to have is this. I think all of us struggle with a tendency to prayerlessly propose solutions without first seeking God's direction. There's a tendency we all have, particularly in Princeton, right? We're can-do people. We're the ones who ought to be able to figure out how to solve our problems. So we've got a problem. We discuss it. We read a book. Look at a TED Talk. 
and then we start making decisions rather than first seeking God's direction. Now, we see this pattern in the text. Verses 1 and uh, one through 3, we've just read. There is a problem in Israel. Samuel's sons are not walking with the Lord. Samuel's getting old. There's a succession issue for the nation of Israel. And in verse 4, we read, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said, Behold, you are old. Your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. So what you have here is the leaders of Israel, possibly 12 people, one from each tribe or more. They've apparently gotten together and they have a solution to the problem. And they've come to Samuel and said, here's what must happen. We need a king. Now notice Samuel's response. Verse 6. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And what does Samuel do? And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people. And all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Now, you might not sort of notice this, but if you look at the text and you think about it, and I'm going to show you one other part of the text, what the writer is doing is he is describing two different pathways to solve problems. One is the elders of Israel. They've apparently met and they've apparently come to a solution, but it does not mention anything about their prayer to God about this particular problem. They've got a problem, they've met, now they have a solution, and now they enact the solution. And then in verse 6, the writer tells us, Samuel's first response, even though he was angry, was to pray. Now we see this repeated in the text, verses 10 through 18, and we'll read those a little bit later on this morning. But in 10 through 18, Samuel rehearses for the people what God says will be the problems with the monarchy, the problems with the king. And notice in verse 19, after God tells them what God says, the the monarchy is going to cause problems for you. What happens in verse 19? But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, which happened to be also the voice of the Lord, right? And they said, no, there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And in verse 21, notice what the writer does here. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, What does Samuel do? He repeated them in the ears of the Lord. He prays again. This is not happenstance. This is an intentional description of two pathways. The first pathway is to, to, you've got a problem. You think about it. You discuss it. You read a book. You do the TED Talk. You get a lot of advice. And then you make a decision and there's very little prayer. The other way, the Samuel way, is to pray about before you do anything. To seek God's direction first, then act. Because here's what happens to us. Many times when we make decisions about how to solve a problem, we haven't consulted God. What we end up doing, first of all, is we, we don't get God's wisdom on the subject. That's not too good. But then what we do is that we start to pray after we have declared our solution in order to ask God to bless the solution that we never consulted God in the first place. It's called a prayer meeting in America, right? I think the writer is deliberately describing these two different approaches. And I've lived in Princeton a fair bit. You all are smart people. At least you say you are. (laughs) 
sorry. I didn't mean that. I mean, I meant it, but I didn't want you to know that I meant that. We tend to be people who act first and pray later. So let me just ask you a few questions. All of you, in some sense, tomorrow will be going to work of some kind. Some of you will be working in an office. Some of you will be working at home. How much time are you going to spend praying about your work day? Or are you just going to drive off to work and wing it in your own strength? How about a ministry team here at Stonehill? You're involved in some ministry. You have a ministry team meeting. How often when you come together do you spend a fair amount of time asking God what we should do in your ministry? Or do you just sit there and share your ideas and then at the end pray about the ideas that you've discussed without the benefit of prayer in the first place? I'm the pastor of care. You end up in my office when things go wrong. I've had four people come into my office and tell me things were going really well. Okay? Four out of 7,000. All right? I think counseling's good for a couple who's struggling. But, but, I, but, I, but I often ask the, the, you know, a couple, are you praying about your problem? Are you seeking God? I mean, yeah, I can help you for an hour maybe here, but are, are you seeking God? Parents, if you've got an issue with one of your kids, are you on your knees seeking God's direction? Or are you trying to figure out how quickly you can make a decision and, 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 and put something together without really consulting God first? Well, this is an important question for us as a church. This week, sometime this week, Wednesday, Thursday, it's a year, a year from now, we'll probably, we might have a new senior pastor. I'll have a new boss. Yikes. Pray for that guy. No. We haven't done this in 35 years. There's about seven people alive since the last time we did this as a church. There may be a few more, but we don't do this a lot. We, are we going to approach this on our knees foundationally? Or are we going to rely on our own wisdom, our own ingenuity, our own Princeton savvy? It's an important question. We all have a tendency to prayerlessly propose solutions without first seeking God. Now, there's a second thing we learn here. And that is this. We all have a tendency to pursue trusting in something, in solutions or in worldly solutions other than God rather than trusting God himself. In other words, we are all tend to try to find something else other than God that we can trust in to deal with the problems we're dealing with. Notice what the, the, the leaders of Israel are doing here. They want a king. They believe that's the solution to the Samuel succession problem. But notice what what the Lord says about this in verse 7. This is Samuel prays to the Lord into verse 6. And then the Lord said, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. 
According to all the deeds that I, they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods so that they're also doing to you. In other words, Samuel, God, God is, is telling Samuel, the people want a king, but it's not because they, they, want, they want a king. It's, it's they're really rejecting me as their king. You see, the reality is it was not wrong for Israel to have a king. Deuteronomy 17, uh, verse 14 to 20, you can read that this afternoon, actually has provisions for having a king in Israel. In fact, the text says you can have a king, just like all the other nations, except your king will not be like all the other nations because your king should rule by the Mosaic law, by the law of God. Genesis 17 talks about uh, how Abram and Sarai will have kings come from there for, as, one of their, as some of their descendants. Jacob in Genesis 35 will be the father of kings will come through his line. So it was not wrong to ask for a king, per se. The problem is the motivation here is not simply when we want a king who will rule according to the law of God. They wanted a king because they were slipping away from trusting God alone to deal with their problems to begin to trust this worldly human instrument rather than God alone. You see this more clearly in verse 19. After the people are warned that the king will not be helpful to them in every respect, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations. And then notice this, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. What these elders are saying is, we need a king who can fight our battles because we've lost confidence that God alone can fight our battles. We need a king who will judge us because we're not confident that God alone can judge us. Having a king was not wrong, but having a king from the wrong motives was deeply, deeply wrong. And so that's the second thing we learn about us. We all have a tendency of pursuing, trusting, or hoping in worldly solutions rather than simply trusting God alone. I was 11 years old. I was in sixth grade. I was going into sixth grade. My family was living in Detroit, Michigan at the time. And just a few years before, my family had moved from Dallas to Detroit. And that was a very hard move for me. I, was, I, I couldn't go to school for about a month till noon because my stomach was so upset meeting the new kids. They made fun of my accent. I didn't, I, it was just a different culture and I was not doing well. But I finally got myself sorted out. God helped me sort it out in Detroit. And then my family announced just a few years later, we're gonna move to Miami, Florida. So here we go again, I thought. So we move all the way down to Miami, Florida. Family was not wealthy, but they bought this house and we got a house with a pool. Yeah, it was an interesting pool. It was an above-ground pool. You know those things, you know, the metal around, you know, the plastic liner. But it was an above-ground pool that had been placed in the ground. <laughs> interesting. But we had a pool. And I can remember my little 11-year-old head just moved into Miami, thinking about going to this new school. I was really nervous. I didn't know what it was going to be like. And I remember sitting in the pool thinking these thoughts. I can go to school. I can probably do the work. 
I don't have to talk to anyone. I don't have to make any friends. I just have to survive every day. And every day after school, I can come to this pool. And if I can come to the pool, life, I can make it. And that pool for me was everything. That pool was my lifeline. That pool actually was just as important as God in providing security for me in that moment. Now, what's your pool? Or based on the text, which, who or what is your king? The king that's going to fight your battles for you. The king that, that you need to have. Yeah, God is great, but, but I need something plus God here to kind of make it through life. I need God but this. What are the pools? What are the kings? What are the things that you have put your hope and trust in that have now pulled you away from trusting in God alone for your hope for your identity, for your future, for your protection, for your security. Because we all have a tendency to pull away from trust in God and to trust other things, worldly things. I'll give you one more example just to kind of push us to think about this a little bit more. I've been a pastor for in two churches, at three churches actually, but two in the United States, one overseas. In the two churches that I have been a pastor of in the United States, I'm gonna, I'll just be honest with you. Um, there's a little passage in James that I often bring to somebody if they are in a medical or a mental health crisis of some kind. It's the passage from James that says, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil and, and, and the Holy Spirit. And, 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 and the prayer of faith will save the one who was sick and, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. This is a resource. This is one thing that God says to us is a resource when you're sick, when you're emotionally or mentally oppressed or physically oppressed. This is a very real resource for you to go to God and depend upon him to heal you. Now, what is interesting, in the United States, I have said this to a number of people. You know, I, I, I don't say this if you have a hangnail, okay? I don't say call for the elders. You've got to be pretty sick or have something that's unexplainable or something that's been chronic, that's been oppressing you. And I've offered this to many people. Come ask the elders, we'll come pray for you. And guess what? Most people don't, don't, don't come. Weird. Now, when I was overseas with a group of students from Ghana, Liberia, and Nigeria, when someone got sick, when somebody had a mental health issue, when someone is in emotional distress, when someone is having a physical crisis, you know what was happening? A lot of oil and a lot of prayer. And I've often wondered, why is that? Is it possible that in our medical abundance in the United States. We slowly slipped from trusting God alone. And now we're trusting medical science. Now, please hear me. If you're really sick, go to a doctor. Okay. Okay. Right. If, if you have some terrible injury, go to the emergency room, call 911. And if your injury is gruesome, by all means, 
go to the emergency room first, then call for the elders once you're cleaned up. Okay. We'll come later. I'm not saying don't go to, 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 to try to do medicine. Don't go to a doctor. I'm saying do that, sure. That's one of the ways God heals us. But I wonder if in the, the advance and the abundance of medical science and advance, we've stopped ultimately trusting God alone to be the one who heals us. Because this is a story in Ghana, in Nigeria, in Liberia with these students who are always anointing each other with oil and praying all the time. The reality for many of these students is they lived in places where there was no medicine. There was not a hospital. If you were sick, you had two choices. Go to the church, go to the witch doctor. So we learn from the text. We all have a tendency to to run after worldly, human substitutes that pull us away from trusting in God alone for every aspect of our life. That's what we learn about ourselves. Now, what do we learn about God? We learn two things about God, two realities about God. The first reality is this. God, according to this text, sometimes allows us to have our misguided desires. Let's look in the text. Back in verse 9, now then obey their voice. Basically, God is telling Samuel, they want a king. It's for the wrong reasons. They've rejected me because they're not trusting me alone. They're trusting their king. They're trusting this human worldly uh, way to, get, to, to protect them. But he does tell Samuel, show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel, verse 10, told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves that the Lord will not answer you in that day. God tries to warn them. Your misguided desires, you think this substitute is going to do all that I can do for you. It won't. He won't. The king will fail you and eventually you'll get tired of the king. And when that happens, you're going to complain to me. And I'm actually going to say, well, that was your choice. Here's the dirty little secret. God sometimes lets us pursue these idolatrous substitutes. Not because he doesn't like us. Not because he's mean or cruel. But because sometimes he has to let us pursue these, these entities, pursue these things, find out they don't work to drive us back to trusting in God alone. And why is that? Well, look at yourselves. You're stubborn people. I think you are, because I'm stubborn. 
God has to continually allow me to pursue my little swimming pool, my little indoor swimming pool, or in, out, out, above the ground, in-ground pool. No one in the world, world had one like us. That was my little substitute God. He gave, I, he let me live like that until we had a big rainstorm and then it collapsed and then I was in real trouble. He lets you pursue your idolatrous pursuit so that you realize the idol doesn't work in order to drive you back to himself. He does it not because he does not like you. He loves you. But frank, frankly, we all know this. We're this stubborn. We have to sort of experience the failure of our pathway to drive us back to a more full-throated, robust trust in the living God alone. There's one last thing we learn about God. And it's interesting in a passage, in a chapter like this, many times when you preach a text, you look at the text that you're, you're looking at. We're looking at 1 Samuel 8, right? I've at least read all the verses to you at least once, all right? But sometimes when you study a text, you, you can't just look at it, and probably every time you really study a text, but many times you, not look, you look at the text, but you also look at the broader context of the rest of Scripture to help you understand what you're seeing in the text. And this is the case. So I'll get to the point. I'll summarize it in a minute, but let me kind of give you a little history lesson. How did these elders of Israel who wanted a king... God tried to warn them. They weren't listening. They weren't praying. They were pursuing this idolatry. How did it work out for them? Well, there were three kings in the United Kingdom when Israel was all together. There was Saul, who turned out to be crazy and, and almost demon-oppressed. Okay? David was pretty good. Okay? He was good, although he did kill a guy you know, after he was with his wife. I mean, that wasn't perfect, but he was better, a lot better. Solomon started out great, built the temple, and then he had a thousand wives and concubines. And he, he, so anyway, the first three, you know, first 120 years of this was sort of a mixed bag. And then the nation divides. The nation divides precisely because of what God warned them would happen. The king would take everything and they split over the economic oppression of Rehoboam, who was Solomon's son. So now the nation split. So now we got the north, Israel, and the south, Judah. And that will go on for 400 years. There'll be 19 kings in the north. There'll be 20 kings in the south in Judah. None of the kings in the north are any good. Zero. Eight of the 20 in Judah are good. And when I say good, it's, we're grading on the curve, okay? So now we've got 400 years actually 520 years of the monarchy of Israel, okay? 39, 39, well, you always get 39, but we got the three in the United Kingdom. So we have 42 kings, only eight of them were good. And at the end of this monarchical reign of 520 years, Assyria comes and destroys the Northern Kingdom and Babylon comes and destroys the Southern Kingdom. It looks like an abject failure, Right? It looks like a disaster. It looks like these elders in 1 Samuel 8. What a tragic error they made. But that's not the rest of the story. Oh, we read in the New Testament. The New Testament says that Jesus 
who was the son of God, God himself, put on a human body. He was born to Mary and Joseph. And guess what? He was a descendant of who? He was a descendant of David. And because he was a descendant of David, he, he rightly could, could, could be the king of Israel. So now we have, through this broken monarchical system that didn't work out so well, we have Jesus, the greater son of David, the king who comes. He comes and dies. He takes our sin upon himself. He gives us his righteousness. If we trust him by faith, we are now part of his kingdom. Not only now, but we know that he's going to come back and set up his future kingdom. A kingdom that will be free of sin, sickness, death, and all that mars this world. A kingdom that will be glorious, and he will be reigning and ruling over it. Oh, see, you're, you're starting to get it. I need to call Pastor Valentine. They're doing it, sort of. Okay. Now, here's what we learn about God, Okay. From putting 1 Samuel 8 in the whole history of sort of the Bible. God's kingdom is going to advance. And your sin and the sin of the other people in your life who mess your life up. Your sin and their sin cannot stop the advance of God's kingdom. You're not big enough to stop God's advance. I mean, this is a tragic error. In First Samuel 8, it's a disaster. It doesn't work out too well. But guess what? The greater son of David comes through this monarchical system. And the greater son of David is going to bring in this new world that we're waiting for. This should give you great encouragement. Your prayerlessness, and believe me, your Princeton people, you're probably not praying like you should. Me too. Your prayerlessness can't stop God's kingdom. Your little pool that you have, I don't know, some, probably most of you don't have an indoor, outdoor, green above the ground pool in the ground. But you've got some kind of pool that's your God substitute. You've got some kind of king that you're trying to set up in your life to rival your allegiance to God. Even when you're involved in that idolatry, you can't stop God's kingdom. It's going to happen. You can't do it. And if you're part of the kingdom by faith... Not having anything to do with what you did, but you simply received the grace of Christ. You are rightly related to this king, this greater son of David. And his kingdom will not fail and you will be part of it. Amen. So I don't want you to be discouraged from the first part of the sermon. To where you go, okay, yeah, I'm prayerless. I get it. I need to pray more. I'm, oh, yeah, I'm an idolater. That's me. I want you to be encouraged. Because if you are rightly related to the king of kings, the son of David, the greater son of David, you're, you're related to him by faith. And if you know that the kingdom that you are now part of is going to advance and ultimately will be consummated and nothing can stop it, when you rightly understand that, this will not make you say, oh, let's, I don't need to pray. God's kingdom is going to, you know, it's going to succeed. No, that rightly understood, you won't go there. And rightly understood, you're not going to say, oh, well, it doesn't matter. I'll find some idols to try to contempt. No, if you really understand that the kingdom of God cannot fail and it will happen in spite of your sin, that will motivate you to get more on board with the kingdom now. Because you know that in the future, it's secure.
And some of you need to hear that. Because I think some of you in this room, you've had a bad month, maybe a bad six months. You're involved in all kinds of idolatry, prayerlessness, you, and, and you somehow think, I, I, I've, I've messed things so bad, it's, I don't know where to go. I don't know how to, how to recover from this. God's kingdom will not fail. And if you're part of it, no matter what you've done, no matter what you do, no matter what you do next week, you can't undo what God is going to do. And if you're rightly related to the king, you will be part of that advance and that consummation. What does the Bible say? Where sin abounds... Grace abounds all the more. So since we know that God's kingdom cannot fail and will advance, our sin and the sin of other people around us cannot stop it. In light of that reality, as a church and as individuals, Why not get in step in a deeper way with that kingdom work? Don't go off to work tomorrow without praying. Don't go try to parent your teenagers without prayer. That's insane. Don't don't play around with your little in-the-ground swimming pool. Don't... Don't play around with your pools in your life, your little substitute kings. Let God deal with that. Why? Because the kingdom is on its way. And nothing, nothing can stop it. Amen? Let's pray together. Dear Father in heaven, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you, Jesus, that you are the son of David according to the flesh. And you were declared to be the Son of God empowered by the Holy Spirit by your resurrection from the dead. I thank you that for those of us who know Christ and are rightly related to him, we are part of your kingdom that cannot fail. Help us to believe that our sin is not big enough to to deter your great kingdom. You're bigger than our sin. You're bigger than our idolatry. You're bigger than our failures. You're bigger than our prayerlessness. Lord, and when we see that, it motivates us to, by your grace and by your power, get in step with what you're doing through prayerful consideration of every move we make in our career, in our home, in our marriage, in our ministry. And it also encourages us to repent quicker, to make mid-course corrections faster, when we find ourselves setting up our little substitute kings, our little pools that we try to find satisfaction and hope and peace and contentment in. Lord, help us by your grace to move forward. And Lord, we look forward to the day when we will be with you in that consummated kingdom that cannot and will not fail. In Jesus' name, amen.